0: As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David.
1: David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me.
0: But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I consider my abortion the greatest act of self-love that I did. I chose... My life, like I chose my goals, and the reason why I get so emotional is, is just thinking back, and like wishing I could go back and hug myself, and um,
1: and tell myself that that it's okay <laughs> to have an abortion, and. And
3: that's what I want everyone to know. It's May 11th, eight ten in the morning, and we are here at the last standing abortion clinic in the entire state of Missouri. It's a gray, pretty nondescript building with a very large royal blue Planned Parenthood sign in the front. What has it been like for the people working here? What has it been like for the people coming here? That's what we're here to find out. Hi, ladies. Hello. Good morning. How are, you? Hi. How are you? Good. Nice to see you.
4: My name is Nikki, and I'm a registered nurse at the Planned Parenthood location in St. Louis, also, though, in Fairview Heights, Illinois. There's 12 recovery chairs in this area and there was a time where it was packed and we were super busy and um, we would see 50 patients in a day, but because of the restrictions, it just is not worth it for patients to jump through this many hoops. I have all these activist friends in st louis that are in missouri that are panicking about you know the roe versus wade news and texas and oklahoma and whatever and i'm like guys we're ahead of them it's it's like this has already happened here like they just don't know that they don't understand but this has been going on since late 2019 so we i mean we effectively are i almost feel like it's symbolic um to do abortions here just to be able to say we can still provide that service but it doesn't make sense. Staffing-wise, it doesn't make sense for the patients. It's just too many restrictions.
5: The dominoes keep falling in the push to overturn Roe v. Wade.
6: The abortion
0: flashpoint all across the country.
7: The Ohio governor signing today the most restrictive abortion law in the country.
0: Alabama passing the nation's most restrictive abortion.
7: Today, Missouri
5: became the latest state to pass one. Oklahoma of
8: Oklahoma passing a near total Texas law California. that would they ban. They
5: face
3: most up to 15 abortions. years in
5: prison.
0: 99 years in prison for performing an abortion. <laughs> Do not start immediately.
3: Hi everyone, I'm Katie Couric, and this is Abortion, The Body Politic, a six-part series from Katie Couric Media and iHeart Media. Bring
5: our sisters, bring our world. Bring our sisters, sister. sister. My body! My choice! My body! My choice! My body! My choice! My body.
3: My choice. Right. We're here to stand with women. 50 years ago this January, The landmark Roe v. Wade decision guaranteed the right to a safe and legal abortion. In just a few weeks, the Supreme Court is expected to reverse that decision. This could be the most consequential opinion in decades. Hundreds of protesters
5: rallied outside the Supreme Court Monday evening after news of the court's draft opinion broke.
3: While the U.S. is taking away that right, the rest of the world is riding a wave of abortion law liberation. Mexico's
5: Supreme Court unanimously ruled on Tuesday that penalizing abortion is unconstitutional. So this
3: is a call to action. This
4: is a five-alarm fire, my friends. This is a time to act and this is not the time to be silent. Because
3: silence is How did we get here? And what will abortion access look like in a post-Roe world? Over the course of the next six episodes, we're going to try to answer those questions by digging into our country's complicated reproductive history, by tracing abortion storylines in pop culture, and by looking abroad for potential role models. But first, we need to start here in the present, because for so many, we're already living in a post-Roe world. A lot of the conversations
9: around access right now have been concentrated on the legality of Roe. And so one of the things that I keep like saying over and over is, yes, Roe v. Wade made abortion legal, but not necessarily accessible. My name is Oriyaku Njaku, with you, she, and they pronouns, and I'm co-founder and executive director of Access Reproductive Care Southeast. We've been funding abortion since July of 2016 and every single year there has been some sort of abortion ban or restriction in every one of the states that we work in. About 90 to 95 percent of folks in our region live in a county without an abortion provider. Um, When we're thinking about the southeast, the state of Georgia has more abortion clinics than Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, and South Carolina combined. The reality is that people are traveling hours, crossing state lines just to get simple health care.
3: Oriyaku Nijaku's organization, ARC Southeast, is an abortion fund. Abortion funds have become a key part of accessing abortions in today's increasingly restrictive climate. In fact, there are more than 90 grassroots organizations across the country working to help people get the abortions they need.
9: Abortion funds are like mutual aid funds, and so essentially we're making sure the material conditions of folks who are seeking abortions um, are being met. And so what that looks like is providing rides, lodging, childcare, translation and interpretation services. Um, you know, there's like a whole range of things as far as things that might be barriers for people to get to an appointment where abortion funds step in to support people in their community.
3: According to the Guttmacher Institute, 2021 was the worst year for abortion rights in almost half a century. Conservative-led state legislators, emboldened by the Supreme Court's 6-3 anti-abortion majority, enacted 108 abortion restrictions in 19 states. That's the most of any year since Roe was established. The thing is, restrictions don't stop people from seeking out and getting abortions. Just look at Texas. After its six week abortion ban went into effect in September, abortions in that state dropped by only 10%, much less than expected. Instead, more Texans traveled out of state or ordered abortion pills online. Once again, here's Oriaku. You
9: know, I think that we're prepared for this moment that we're in. Um, We've gotten a lot of practice getting people across state lines, getting people out of the region to get care. And for me, you know, I'm not taking a doomsday approach in doing this work. And it's not to not honor the realness, you know, of the situation that we're in, but it's like, what are we we doing? Like, what are we building power for? That future to me is like so dreamy and so amazing that I'm like, I will do whatever it takes to try to get people to be like, come on, this is for our collective liberation. So how far are you willing to go? What risks are you willing to take? Because personally, I don't want to be here 50 years from now still talking about the legality of Rome, still trying to figure out how to overcome all of these barriers. And I want to experience reproductive justice in my lifetime, you know, not only for me, but for future generations, too.
8: Would you be open to sharing your abortion story?
3: wow, like I love telling my abortion story, actually. One of the things that was important to us in making this series was sharing first-person abortion stories because these restrictions, this Supreme Court reversal, affects real people, real lives, and real families. The stories we'll share over the course of this series span generations, socioeconomic statuses, gender identities, and the country itself.
10: When I had told him that I was pregnant, he was kind of like, okay, we'll go get an abortion. Like it was
11: like gonna be so easy, like one, two, three, right?
9: I found out I was pregnant a week before SB8 went into effect. All I could think when I called Planned Parenthood was I will not die because of this pregnancy and because no one will listen to me
11: and no one will help me. We went home that day knowing that our pregnancy likely would need to be terminated but with no real clear answer on when we would know exactly what was causing the issue.
2: There's a lot of like big abortion clinics um, around me where they disguise themselves as, oh, come here to seek, you know, your pregnancy crisis, like abortion care, and they're not really there to help you get an abortion.
6: I just remember walking in and seeing so many people there. So we're still in the pandemic, and there's at least 50 people in that waiting room. And so that alone gave me anxiety.
10: And I called my insurance and I was confused and they explained that, oh, actually,
9: only medically
7: necessary abortions are covered.
9: I can't afford an abortion.
8: I was a Medicaid recipient. And because of the the Hyde Amendment that you can't, Medicaid recipients can't, you know, use their Medicaid to cover abortion costs. I was also a full-time student at the time, a couple years emancipated from the foster care system. So I was essentially like on my own.
10: I didn't have any money at the time. I was working at like Planet Fitness, so a gym for like
1: $10 an hour. Despite this being the largest public university in the state, the nearest clinic was over an hour and a half away. I didn't have a car. Public transit in Georgia is questionable at best. I almost missed the 12-week mark down here
5: because
4: of how backed up it is. There's only one clinic in my area that, um, you know, um,
2: manages abortion
10: care. She refused to give me the medication because she was afraid that I would change my mind.
9: I didn't know if it was actually going to work. I didn't know if I was going to bleed out. I didn't know what to expect.
1: Even though I knew an abortion was what I wanted, I had spent so many years having shame about abortion, like, instilled and ingrained into me that I was too scared to ask any of my friends for help. I think that was just, like, the hardest part of it was the
2: feeling that, like, internalized shame when I knew there was nothing to be ashamed about.
3: More than 30 people and counting have shared their experiences for this project. It's my producer, Lauren Hansen, who's been on the listening end of most of these
8: stories. Each person's story is unique. Sometimes they're totally uneventful, and sometimes they're wrapped up in so much trauma and like this raw emotion. But then a lot of them have these threads like, Every single person I have spoken to, no matter if they had a support system around them, no matter if they were completely alone and scared, they all felt in some way alone and they felt a lot of shame. And it's remarkable to me that across decades, across race and class, that is true with abortion stories. And it's crazy. And that's what all those shout your abortion and we testify groups are trying to do is like, this does not need to be the case. You yourself
3: had an abortion. And it's something that you're willing to talk about now, perhaps something that you didn't feel comfortable talking about before you really explored this whole subject. What has made you more willing to
8: tell your story? I mean, it's so funny. It's so true. I really hadn't told many people And then I started reporting this and I literally just started saying the word abortion. It was like the word abortion made me like talk smaller, you know, and by just having these conversations, I would much more comfortable and someone would share their story. And I'd be like, well, actually, I had an abortion, too. And I felt like it helped make us be more on the same page and make it like a safe space and. To some degree, I understood what they went through. So I actually, through reporting, shared my story just one-on-one with a few people. And I certainly felt that if I was asking others to come to the table and share their story, that I should absolutely do the same. So, yeah, I was like, well, I might as well share my abortion story. And tell (laughs) me, can you share it with me now? Yeah, it's, well, it's funny. It's definitely one of those that's not, it's not much of a story because I was so privileged to live in New York at the time, have insurance and I had a support system. My boyfriend, who became my husband, we got pregnant. How old were you at the time? I was 24 and I'd been out of school for a few years. I had just gotten what I considered like a real job. Um, I was a publicist at an art book company and I was being asked to like fly to London for this publicity conference. And I go to have what I thought was my abortion. So I'm already like calling up my boss and saying, uh, I have a, um, a root canal. I'm, I can't come in because I know nothing. I, you know nothing about the process. And so I go in and I was really early. I was so early that you couldn't see it in the, the sonogram that goes inside. Mm-hmm. And at that time, which would have been 2004, um, I guess you did have to see it even in New York. And so they were like, you have to come back. So I made an appointment, but in between, my I had to wait three weeks. So I was pregnant for, like, three more weeks, which felt crazy to me. I flew to London on that trip that I was so excited about, my first time abroad. And then I was out to dinner with, like, the uh, more senior women. And they were all so cool. Like, they were editors of these art books, and I just loved everything about them. And one of them was like, Lauren, how was that flight for you? And I was like, it was fine. They're like, you know, because of the the root canal and I was like yes yes (laughs) it actually now that you say it and I'm like stopping to eat and you know just like falling (laughs) over my lies and we get I get back to New York and my my uh, appointment is coming up and I went to the uh, Brooklyn-based Planned Parenthood and I had my abortion it was unbelievably easy I think it I was there for maybe like an hour like I remember like being given cookies afterward and sitting in this room, and there were other women in this room, and it felt like easy and safe. And my boyfriend came and picked me up, and we walked. I remember walking back to his apartment, and we watched The O.C. the rest of the (laughs) afternoon. (laughs) And it was so easy, but I, what's crazy to me, looking back on how easy that was, and I felt supported by my boyfriend, there was no question that this was my decision, and we were both like, duh, like, I just got this job. I had this whole life ahead of me but I never told anyone. I lived with like four roommates at the time and I had to lie to them or keep it quiet. And And it was not for judgment. I mean, maybe, I just didn't know. I didn't know how to share it. It felt weird to share. So we just kept it between us and I never told my parents. And then, you know, in preparation for this podcast, I was like, I gotta tell my parents. Like, my parents are very supportive people. So I was on vacation with them just the other month and talking about doing this series. And it was after dinner. And I was like, well, actually, I've been meeting to tell you guys that 20 years ago I had an abortion. And my mom goes, oh, I actually had an abortion, too. And I was like, what? And if we just talk about these things, you realize, like, how common it is, that thing of you know me, like... Everybody does know someone who has an abortion, and it doesn't have to be a story or it can be traumatic, but it exists and it's necessary for that person, whatever their reason is. We'll be
3: right back.
0: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S.
3: It's an extremely hot day here in Illinois. I am walking into the Fairview Heights Planned Parenthood facility and regional logistics center to talk to staff members, hopefully a couple of patients, to really get a a look at what life is like in a clinic that provides abortion care. Let's go. This is a new facility and it's really beautiful. Super modern, clean, and very cool I might add. This Planned Parenthood clinic is buzzing with activity compared to the Missouri clinic we visited just across the state line. And on the day we're here, a patient is willing to share her story. Hi, how are you? Hi, hi. I'm Katie. I'm Hannah. It's hi nice Hannah. to meet you. Very nice to meet you, too. Who's this? That's Azrael. Hi. hi. Say Tell hi, to hello.
2: He is 16 months. Aww.
3: Hannah and I meet in the clinic's family room, a bright sunlit space with toys, bags strewn about, and a giant blackboard with chalk and some leftover scribbles from other families who have also used the space. Hannah and I sit on one of the gray couches. Her son plays next to her. Tell me about yourself, Hannah. Um, how old you are? And I'm
2: 30.
3: You're 30 years old.
2: Yes, oh God. It you, took 30 years to get here, but I guess we're here now. And you have a little
3: boy, obviously, who's yes. 16 months.
2: Yes, I do, and I also have twin girls that are eight. They'll be nine in June. Wow. Yes, so we've we got a full house. At home, like, it's very full. Our family is, so it's not that I don't want kids. <laughs> I really do. But uh, this this time around was just a bit different. We had some big plans. And uh, so that, those big plans really didn't include a little bitty one.
3: Do you have a partner?
2: I do, yes, I have a boyfriend. We've been together for now almost two years.
3: And how, how does he feel about your decision to terminate the pregnancy?
2: He doesn't know.
3: He doesn't know.
2: The plot thickens. Yeah, no, he doesn't know.
3: What kind of hardship would it be for you to have another baby at this point?
2: The more the merrier is what I've always said, but... I don't know. With all the time that I lost, I felt like... I didn't lose the time because I got to raise him, you know, for the first year of his life. But I want my job back. I want a career and I want my children to know like mommy went to school and mommy does this now and mommy makes money I knew
3: you're you're here to pick up a pill uh, to have a medication abortion why did you choose that
2: it was less invasive and it was also less time I knew that if we had if we had to take care of this so to speak in a this sounds horrible but in a in a more secretive way this was the best option and we were early enough you know I caught it at like five weeks so it was extremely early and I was like I took probably about two two and a half weeks to think about it and then the rest of the time was scheduling it
3: you couldn't get this in the state of Missouri no and so you had to how far did you come it's a three and
2: a half hour drive but we took our time we stopped off at the candy store you know stuff like that so yeah i know so it took took about five hours
3: (laughs) took about five hours about
2: that yeah because we took our time
3: did the people in front of the clinic try to pressure you or approach you
2: yes oh that was so scary i thought they worked here
3: What did they say?
2: They were talking about how she said, did you have an ultrasound yet? Have you gone and seen the doctor? Every question under the sun. Hey, I'll adopt your baby. She wanted to adopt my baby. I was like, you have no idea who I am.
3: Would it be easier if you could do this near your home in Missouri?
2: Yes. Oh, gosh, yes. So much easier if I didn't have to travel. I mean, do you know that I I had $1,100, okay? $1,100, $1,100, and it was going to get me lodging, it's going to get the $500 for the pill, and then it's going to get me uh, my gas. I drive a Yukon. It's a 90s. <laughs> it's a gas guzzler. So it's it's extremely, uh, extremely costly to have to not be in my own state and to have to not be near anybody that I know. It's like I don't know anybody here. You know, so last night, and I didn't get to bring anybody either, so last night, you know, I had like a, probably about an hour and a half of just bawling, you know, so not being near my home, that also sucked that I didn't have my best friend, my guy, you know, so it sucked.
9: Perfect, timing.
1: I'm all done right? with your, got your medicine here for you.
2: All right, give me my drugs, man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so the doctor has to be the one to give you the first dose of medicine. Okay. This is the medicine that you're gonna take home. Put all four tablets in between your teeth and your cheek. Okay? And they need to be in there for at least 30 minutes.
2: And it's the exact 24 or 48 hours. Break 20, between 24 40. to 48. I'm just making sure I get this yep. right. So Repetition. between 24 and
3: 48.
2: Okay. Okay. Awesome.
10: There's two types of abortion. There's medication abortion, and then there's what we call procedural abortion. I know it's commonly referred to as surgical, but I think that can be really scary for patients to hear because it's, you know, a surgery sounds like it's really intense, and we're not actually doing any cutting. We're not using a scalpel. We're actually using an opening that already exists in the body to remove the pregnancy from the uterus. My name is Dr. Mira Shah and I am a family medicine physician. I am the chief medical officer of Planned Parenthood, Hudson McConnick in New York. I'm also the medical director of Whole Women's Health Alliance in South Bend, Indiana. So the other method of abortion is medication abortion. It's a process where patients take first one pill called Mifepristone. And what Mifepristone does is it stops the pregnancy from growing and from thriving in the uterus. It is safe up to 11 weeks gestational age. And what patients do is they first take the Mifepristone and then they follow up with four pills of a medication called Misoprostol. What Misoprostol does is it it induces cramping and bleeding and expulsion of the pregnancy from the uterus. We have patients typically take one set of four pills. If they're below nine weeks, if they're um, between nine and 11 weeks, and we'll have them take two sets of those four pills four hours apart from one another. We provide them with anti-nausea medication um, because they may already be nauseous from being pregnant, but sometimes the misoprostol can induce nausea if they weren't already nauseous before. Um, And we also give them high-dose ibuprofen to help ease the cramping that they they will feel um, while they're expelling the pregnancy. The way that the FDA has regulated Mifepristone is it's kept it on the REMS list, which means that it is highly regulated and restricted from being freely accessible to patients. And it makes it harder for physicians to prescribe the medication. That said, there's been a few changes in the, in, in the past few years. So when I first started out, it used to be that the patient had to take the medication in the office and we had to watch them swallow the pill there's no reason for this, medically speaking. But that was the case and that, you know, we follow all the rules and so we were doing that. The FDA changed the labeling around Mifepristone several years ago and New York State interpreted it in a way that made it so that the physician could just administer the, uh, the Mifepristone, but the, the patient could take it home and start the process when they felt most comfortable.
3: Another more recent change is that abortion medication can now be mailed to patients instead of them having to come into their local health center. This was a temporary pandemic allowance that became permanent.
10: The patient receives an appointment through a teleconferencing platform through our um, protected electronic medical record. We date their pregnancy based on their last menstrual period and if we feel confident in their dates and that they meet criteria um, of less than 11 weeks and they have no medical contraindications, which you know most people don't, then we can mail the Mifipristone and the Miso to their home. That said, this is the case in New York. This is not the case everywhere. So in Indiana, for example, um, where I'm a medical director of a clinic there, there is an outright ban on telemedication abortion. Not telemedicine, but telemedication abortion. In Indiana, the individual still has to go to a health center in order to get the medication. So whenever they come in for the appointment is when the process is initiated. The government has essentially taken that autonomy out of the patient's hands. It's really hard for me to see Restrictions just get worse over time. The last time I was in Indiana, I was told that we now have to give a copy of the ultrasound image to the patient, whether they ask for it or not. In some states, they have to actually look at it or hear the, the sounds of the cardiac activity. But in Indiana, we have to actually give them a copy of the ultrasound. I just tell them that this is a law And I put the image in a manila envelope and then give it to them and say, you can do what you want with this, but it is required by law that I give it to you. And I apologize for that because I don't think that it's medically necessary. Every time I go to Indiana, I'm shocked. It hasn't become normalized for me because I am able to provide a very different type of care to my patients in New York. And, you know, the zip code in which you live should not determine the type of health care that you receive. But unfortunately, that is the case.
3: We'll be right back.
7: Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver.
1: All right, so we're going to walk to the back, um, which is in our recovery area, so you can meet Dr. Baum, which is one of our AB providers. Great. And she's also our medical director.
2: <laughs> All right, follow me this way.
3: <laughs> back at the Missouri clinic, I met with Dr. Margaret Baum. This is Katie. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Baum. How are Hi, you? Are you? Oh, so Very nice to, to, meet, to meet, meet you. you. Since there weren't any patients there, we sat in two chairs in the recovery room. How difficult or challenging has it been for you to work in the state of Missouri?
6: Oh, that's a good question. You are in the only freestanding abortion providing facility in Missouri. And we are, as you know, right at the Illinois border. And that is an advantage for us, but not an advantage for everyone else, right? The vast majority of Missourians don't live right here in St. Louis. Missouri has some of the strictest restrictions on abortion in the country. So we have a 72-hour waiting period.
3: Which means patients have to come twice. Correct.
6: And in fact, what that means is right now there are only two of us that provide abortions here at this facility in the entire state, myself and my partner. And so we do other things too, which... I'm not available to be here to do abortions every 72 hours. So if you want an abortion in Missouri, you either have to see myself or my partner. So part of the law is that actually for your first visit, the consent visit has to be done by a physician, which is certainly not the case in most places. And it has to be done by the physician who will then perform the abortion. So today I have... Four patients who are scheduled to see me to just do a consent process. I don't know where they're coming from. They could be coming from, you know, five hours away in Missouri. They could be coming from St. Louis. I don't know. And then they will be scheduled for their procedure in a week. So that means, number one, they have to wait a week to have their procedure and have their pregnancy progress another Why week. A week. Well, because that's the next time I am here providing services. And if something happens, so if they get sick or they don't have childcare or their work says, you can't be off next Wednesday, or I get sick and I can't come in, they can't have their procedure with my partner. They would have to recome come back and consent with her, or consent with me, wait another week, and have their procedure.
3: What other obstacles have they put up in this state?
6: Um, so, Missouri... <coughs> has mandated pelvic exams with abortions. And so for a surgical abortion, we do pelvic exams. That's part of the procedure. I'm going to be instrumenting your pelvis and your uterus. I'm going to do an exam before I do it. Completely normal. They also mandated pelvic exams with medication abortions. So that is completely unindicated. So if I see someone in Illinois for a medication abortion, uh, typically they get an ultrasound, I review the ultrasound, I talk to them, nobody takes any clothes off, I give them the pill, they take the second pill at home, they have their medication abortion at home. There's no need to do a pelvic exam. And in fact, we really have equated this to your dermatologist saying, I'm gonna take that mole off your arm, let me do a pelvic exam first. It's completely inappropriate right to insist that someone takes off their pants that i touch their genitals when it is not indicated so we as a practice decided that medication abortions will not be offered in missouri you can't get a pill abortion in missouri
3: so what is the rationale by lawmakers to mandate that
6: (laughs) well that's a good question i mean this is where where you really see that they do not understand the process that we're doing right there is there is, I can't imagine why I would need to do a pelvic exam before a medication abortion. It would not give me any information that would make me say, yes, the patient should have a medication abortion. No, they shouldn't. I should recommend some alternative, alternative procedure. I can't imagine a, scenario, a medical correct scenario in which that would happen. It is a barrier to care. They are putting up additional barriers to make it harder and harder for patients in Missouri to access abortion services. So, speaking of things that make things difficult in Missouri, this is Missouri's informed consent booklet. We have to give this to every patient presenting for an abortion in Missouri. Now, what I say is I have to give this to you. You don't have to read it, and you can leave it, you know, on the table, but we have to give this to you. This is how it starts. The life of each human being begins at conception. Abortion will terminate the life of a separate, unique, living human being. I mean, that's, that's not medical information, correct? Um, so this is full of all kinds of misleading facts that we are required to give to patients. This is the informed consent form that um, we have to fill out, again, that the physician has to fill out most of with a patient, 72 hours at least, before their procedure. So some of this, you know, you have to know the name of the physician, ask questions, okay, and then the nurse does most of this. And then I am required to read this paragraph to every patient that says the immediate and long-term medical risks to me associated with a proposed abortion, including but not limited to infection, hemorrhage, cervical tear, or uterine perforation, harm to subsequent pregnancies, or the ability to carry a subsequent child to term, and possible adverse psychological effects. That sounds really scary, doesn't it? And it's not true. No, I mean, there are, with any procedure, there are risks. The risks are very minimal with abortion, but this maximizes the risks and minimizes how actually safe that abortion is
3: and does it minimize your uh, your chances of getting pregnant? No. no. So some of the some of these are just blatant.
6: Correct. And lies. I I always say I didn't, you know, doctors did not write this. This was written by legislators, but I am required to read this and give this information to a
3: patient. When this clinic closes because Missouri has a trigger law, right? Yes. If Roe is yes. overturned, Like, I believe 26 other states. That's correct. They will make abortion illegal in those states. Mm -hmm. So, this clinic will, I guess, the abortion care part of this clinic will have to shut down.
6: Yes, that is correct. Abortion services we will only provide at our Illinois location.
3: What will that mean for the women of Missouri? So, it's.
6: It's a little bit additional travel. And so, you know, if you're already coming three or four hours from Springfield, Missouri, you know, is another 20 minutes into Illinois, you know, so much bigger, um, maybe not. But also I do feel like there is, that's there, a barrier, right? To say you have to leave your state, the state in which you live and pay taxes and send your children to school, to go to another state to have, again, a, a legal normal medical procedure, that, that is a barrier. It feels like that we are not taking care of the patients that, I live in Missouri, I grew up here in Missouri, I have a family here, and I wanted to work here and provide care. And certainly this has become, in Missouri has made it extremely difficult to do so.
3: Meanwhile, other states like New York, California, and Illinois are expanding their services and preparing for the upcoming influx of -of out-of-state abortion patients. Attached to the clinic that I visited in Illinois is the brand new regional logistics center. It's kind of like an abortion fund meets travel agent meets doctor's office. It's abortion care of the future. The center's president, Jamel C. Rodriguez, shows me around.
11: This is the area of our um, facility that we just opened in January, so this is the part where we're doing all of the navigation work, um, the scheduling, providing financial assistance, traveling, um, and other logistics accommodations. So So
3: this is like air traffic control for people who want to get abortions but don't have the money or don't know where to go, maybe need transportation, hotel rooms. Before it was very piecemeal. You just had to kind of try to put put the pieces of the puzzle together to Correct. allow you to be able to do this.
11: Correct. And, and that, that was the whole vision behind this, right? What if we can have just one, the patient will just have to make one phone call to one place and we could connect them to all of the resources, not just the abortion appointment, but all of the wraparound really support that they were going to need to make it to an appointment. And we built it thinking, you know, we know that there's going to be a lot of women from Missouri that are going to come here. But what we've seen and the patient, that the support person I was talking to just came from Texas.
3: You all are going to be very
11: busy. We have been very busy. Certainly after the Texas abortion ban, there has been this ripple effect where patients are being displaced, right, from their home state, and everybody has been forced to travel X amount of time because there's just not enough providers out there. This facility, it's expecting... 14,000 additional patients a year if If Roe falls. What
3: is the impact of this decision? It's hard to overstate. This is Mary Ziegler. She's one of the country's preeminent abortion legal scholars. We spoke after the Supreme Court draft was leaked, a draft Politico called a full throated, unflinching repudiation of the 1973 decision.
5: Oh yeah, there's no question. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> I don't know how much more full-throated or repudiation you could have. So that that characterization of the draft is absolutely right. I mean, there are going to be impacts on, um, on lots of people's lives, people who can be pregnant, um, just as was the case with the war on drugs, we would expect those impacts to be felt the most acutely by people who are in the most heavily policed communities, who are the people who are most likely to be found out if they're having abortions. There will be people um, impacts on people who never seek abortions because doctors will be reluctant to treat ectopic pregnancies or incomplete miscarriages or other things that may be perceived as abortion because they're unwilling to lose their licenses or go to prison. Um, It's going to affect people in blue states who are going to see people traveling from out of state to seek abortions. Um, It's going to affect doctors in blue states who may be potentially sued or charged with a crime in red states. It's going to shake up the 2022 midterms. It's going to shake up the 2024 presidential elections. And, you know, as a historian, it it also is going to have unpredictable effects. Right. I think the Supreme Court felt very confident in 1973 that it knew what would happen after Roe v. Wade was reversed. And of course, we know 50 years later that they were absolutely wrong. Um, And there's no reason to think that we can absolutely predict what's going to happen after this decision in
3: much the same way. How were they wrong? Can you give us some insight into that? Yeah, I
5: mean, Justice Blackman had a clipping in his files that said essentially, you know, 70 something percent of Americans think abortion should be a decision between a woman and her doctor. The numbers were very similar then as now. And so he thought, OK, well, if, if the court says abortion is a decision between a woman and her doctor and there's a sound constitutional foundation for that, people are going to just accept that and move on. And we know that didn't happen. This Supreme Court somehow seems to think that if it sends this back to the states with lots of winks and nudges that maybe other precedents can be overturned and maybe fetal personhood is going to be recognized, this is going to go away. When that opinion will be running against popular opinion, that's insane, right? So people are sort of like, this is all over, just really, whether they're pro-choice or pro-life, are not paying attention. Like, this is going to just be the opening salvo in a much, much longer battle Um, And people, I would imagine, who support abortion rights are going to be in this for the long haul too. And we may be looking at, you know, decades down the road, a Supreme Court decision reinstituting abortion rights. So if the court thinks it can put an end to this one way or another, or it can remove itself from the conversation, it has another thing coming.
1: This is called, Why We Hold Our Tongues.
3: Finally, a poem by Sonia Renee
1: Taylor. To say I had an abortion is to join a blood coven, to be sister with the worst of our ilk, sister with the one who strapped hers in seat belts, sent the car skipping like rocks to drop in a lake, sister with the hand that pressed her five children to the liquid casket of a bathtub. This is to say, I know how people will clutch their grace until I bring them an amulet of sorrow. How this hive expects my cells turn regret. If not a baby, at least bring us the surrogacy of your shame. To say the word abortion is to say I am a shamed thing, a womb turned urn. It is to say I killed, died, am dead as I speak to you now. It is to say even my teeth wish to flee my mouth, the leper of my gums. I must be liar. Please be liar if I say I'm not sad. To say I'm not sad is to say I am monster, I am heartless as tile, a physician's claw, is to say I am receptacle, food made rancid by my own hands. Can you smell my stink, the rotting of me? To say I called the clinic on a Tuesday night, made an appointment for Wednesday morning, is never to say I was 19. He was 19, our teenage mothers began dissolving our futures in crack pipes when we were five. Never that he washed the dishes of American dreamers till his hands calloused. Never my wince at their touch. Never that a black girl's tuition for a better life is 14 hour workdays plus classes. Lest the glass slipper fairy tale of a strippers pole an old man's semen find her. Never that I almost chose an old man semen to say, when the nurse handed me a photo, a marble of tissue growing, I only asked if I would feel better when it was done, is never to say, we would have just been another thing for you to hate. A food stamp tick, fat lazy breeder, did beat prison number, a white trash trailer hitch, a rape, a black boy with a gun and no daddy, a bitter exhausted nail holding up our own crucifixion, a thing to pity, promote, donate to, a poverty gutter to gather your own reigning self-esteem in. To say I cried for my best friend as I took my panties down and laid on the table is to sever the stitch of shame to let the milk of this choosing spill from me until I am fresh vessel. It is to unlatch my wrist, bound in penance to the unhelpful, to the watchers with only burrs to give. To say the doctor's face was a blur of soft cotton, but his voice was a crisp spill. Speculum is to free the pigeon of truth from its cage so that it might return dove. To say in the recovery room, I smelled the twenty shades of crimson escape fleeing down all the women's thighs is to say I am seer and historian, conqueror and scared teenage girl 13 credits shy of statistic to say that I have never spent $350 more wisely is to hang my two degrees in a house whose shoulders refuse to slump to stare down the brick and backhand of this world without reproach in a land that would sooner fuck or forget us, that would rather see me orphan than owner of my own flesh, to say that I did not choose to keep, that which I know would have been beautiful and brutal, is to say unashamedly that I did choose life, to say unapologetically that I did choose life. I did choose life, mine.
3: Abortion, the Body Politic is executive produced by me, Katie Couric, and was created by a small team led by our intrepid supervising producer, Lauren Hansen. Editing and sound design by Derek Clements and Jessica Kreinchich. Research by Nina Perlman. And a special thanks to KCM producers, Courtney Litz and Adriana Fazio.